American Hot Wax, featuring Lorraine Newman, opened in April 1978. Hello and welcome to this special episode of SN Hell. My name is Keith. Not with me is my old buddy Matt. Yes, I couldn't pay Matt to watch American Hot Wax. <laughs> Tonight's movie is American Hot Wax, April 1978. It was released. It features one of our favorites, Lorraine Newman, in one of her first screen roles. A little background on this, the movie was released in 1978. The United States culture is still experiencing a strong period of 50s nostalgia ushered in by the likes of American Graffiti and Happy Days, logic being all the folks that grew up in the 50s were now the ones making the money, and they had the money to spend. It's the same reason why songs I grew up with are now being used for commercials for, like, butter and stuff. This 91-minute rocktacular currently has a 6.9 out of 10 rating on the IMDb. Now, the film is considered to have been a bomb or a failure, but it grossed between 8 and $11 million at the box office in 1978. I don't see how that's a failure, um, looking at other movies from the period. It's the semi-fictional biography uh, of a segment of the life of Alan Freed. Freed is pretty much universally regarded as the first rock and roll disc jockey. And while he wasn't the inventor of the phrase rock and roll, he's the one that really made it popular. He's also credited as being part of the promotion team for the first rock concert ever held. It was called the Moondog Coronation Ball in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, Freed's connection to Cleveland and rock and roll is essentially the grounds for why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland. So this movie is directed by Floyd Muttrix. I hope I'm saying that right. Written by John Kay and Art Linson. And it stars Tim McIntyre as the man himself, Freed. Rounding out the cast, we have a bunch of uh, appearances by legit rock and roll and R&B legends like Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Screamin' Jay Hawkins, uh, Frankie Ford. A bunch of groups that were put together for the film, the Chesterfields, the Plano Tones, the Delights, and Timmy and the Tulips. They're sort of standing in for groups like the Dominoes or the Coasters or the Platters. Also in the cast, a very young and very new Jay Leno, an equally young and e almost equally new Fran Drescher. And, of course, one of our favorites, Lorraine Newman. So the movie kicks off in September of, it's either 59 or 60. Uh, Freed is a disc jockey in New York. And like all disc jockeys, we are told, in the 1950s who play rock and roll, he's very popular with the kids, but all the stuffy old folks, you know, parents and officials and station managers, essentially anyone old enough to vote doesn't like rock and roll. Freed, he's also promoting a big concert at the Paramount Theater, which is due to be headlined by Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry. Freed had previously had a similar concert in Boston, but it, it caused a riot, or allegedly caused a riot, fearful of the same thing happening on their streets. These New York law folk think Freed is encouraging immoral behavior by playing rock and roll. And despite requests from many folks in power. He refuses to change his programming, and he's going to stick with rock and roll and not move on to the lighter poppy stuff. Adding complications to his life in general is he's just constantly besieged by people coming to him trying to get him to play their music because at that point in time, Freed playing your music made you a star overnight. So we have some interwoven subplots. We have uh, Teenage Louise, played by Lorraine Newman, kind of a prodigy for writing doo-wop music, um, despite her parents' uh, objections to her association with rock music and the black singing group, the Chesterfields. 
They're trying to push her into going to college. Basically, your sort of typical, almost jazz singery type thing. Uh, and two of Freed's employees, Mookie, his chauffeur, played by Jay Leno, and Cheryl, his receptionist, played by Fran Drescher. They're very different, these two, but they might have a little more in common than you thought. As soon as I saw Fran Drescher sitting at a reception desk at a radio station, I immediately, my mind immediately shifted to UHF, where she's the receptionist at uh, the station. Kind of got a little kick out of that. All these plots eventually culminate on the night the big show is scheduled. So, some thoughts on this movie. Uh, Tim McIntyre definitely reminds me of like a young Orson Welles. Um, doesn't look much like Freed, but that doesn't really bother me. I thought he did an excellent job as like this benevolent yet overwhelmed kind of power broker who's juggling like opposition with his passions and sycophants and fairweather friends, but yet still maintaining a passion for rock and roll or his, his craft. I found his performance was like refreshingly real and really understated. We see an outwardly friendly showman, but yet inwardly there's like this calculating strategist. Logically knowing what Freed faced in his professional life and, and what he did go on to accomplish, I think that's a very wise way to play the, to play the role. I'm pretty cool, actually. Um, Jay Leno and Fran Drescher. It's really hard for me to see Jay Leno playing anything beyond Jay Leno. I know he did a movie in the 80s with Pat Morita that I saw, and he was actually pretty good in that as well. So Jay's Mookie, or Michael, is like a plucky, sensitive sort of greaser. I mean, he does a good job. There's, there's not much to work with. And Fran Drescher has, uh, again, she has even less to work with. She's obviously a very capable actor, even at that time. It's a few years later she shows up in Spinal Tap, uh, kind of a more flushed out version of this character, I think. She's kind of like a uptown girl, sort of a counterbalance to Leno's Mookie. Um, but they don't give her much to work with. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of generic and kind of clunky lines in there makes her character kind of a tad insufferable uh, at times, actually. But I don't think, like, another actor could have done any better. It almost seems as like they had a script written, and then they said, oh, shit, we don't have a love story. Okay, give him a chauffeur and give him a secretary. There's just this buckshot approach to tell Freed's story, but also in this 90-minute period follow, like... Mookie and Cheryl story and also uh, Teenage Louise. And because of this, a lot of characters, like I mentioned, come off as completely underdeveloped. We don't really get to know anything about these people except how they're related to rock and roll or how they're related to someone who's related to rock and roll. Alan Freed's backstory, we get almost nothing. We have no idea if he's married, if he has a family, what he likes, what he talks about, what he does beyond rock and roll music. And maybe he didn't do anything. But uh, we, we don't even hear that. Um, all of a sudden, there's this estrangement from his father that kind of sneaks in and then leaves without any lead up or follow up. I love films that have like overlapping dialogue. I always think of like the Robert Altman type things. Um, Hot Wax has a lot of that and it's really done well and it's done at appropriate times that really make sense. If you are a fan of 50s music, you, you, you'll probably love this movie. You'll definitely love the soundtrack. There were some really great cameos. They were among the best part of the uh, the movie. And it's too bad that more of the original acts weren't in the film or, or at least gave permission or whatever the legalities there are to have the band's name used or, or actors filling in as the band like they do in the Buddy Holly story. Later, they do it in La Bamba. They do it all the time. Instead, we get these kind of made-up groups and, and it doesn't have the same feel. 
A really cheesy element of the film is that Lorraine's character is credited with writing all these songs that, you know, other people wrote. Since I Don't Have You, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Um, I, I was sort of saying, well, why would they do that? It's a celebration of 50s music. Why rewrite and in one case perhaps whitewash the, the true history of it? While they certainly could have found someone in New York City to write something half-decent in the style of, it sort of felt like it, it was robbing someone of, of, a, of a credit in a way. Another element that bugged me is, like, the concert is the big deal of the show, but, like, whether or not it happens, it's not really a matter of life and death for anyone. There's not really any reason to root for the show to happen beyond the show happening. There's something about the way Freed is portrayed that it's like, okay, if this one doesn't happen, I'll get another one. Now, they do run into complications very late in the game that, that would impede that. But why does this concert matter? Um, and maybe I just missed it in the in the storytelling with a lot of other distractions and stuff kind of entering in there. The concert sometimes got lost in the shuffle. There's this weird thing about rock movies. You know, you get really energized with them, especially like biography, rock biography movies. You get really energized by the music and, and you're excited about the time and the artistry. And then suddenly the movie ends and Richie Valens' brother is standing on a bridge screaming in agony. Or there's a Chiron that says, this character you've just come to like died two days later. <laughs> you know, something like that. And we kind of get that here. All the positive energy really gets snuffed out. As well, there's this weird thing with a homeless guy. I think he's homeless, who's kind of looks like a little Richard. And he's singing and playing on a drum and it's supposed to mean something. It just doesn't make any sense in context of what we've seen up to that point. This movie was produced in the gritty 70s, but it definitely had a feeling that it was trying to be as accessible to a large audience as possible. And like I said, it had its fair share of generic characters doing generic things and saying generic sentences. It's really stuck in its own little realm here because it's not as smart as American Graffiti. And not as focused as the Buddy Holly story. And it's not as like mindless and accessible and fluffy as Grease. So it's kind of like this weird no man's land 50s movie from the 70s. Despite all that though, I enjoyed this. Watching it, the time passed really quickly. I really enjoyed Tim McIntyre and he passed away very young. I wish he left us more to, uh, to see. Um, and, and you know, some of the broadness and almost melodramatic bits kind of worked for me in a comic way probably not i don't know if it would have worked the same at the time the music is awesome this concert section is fantastic and though i said they should have used maybe tried to use the original performers a lot of these uh groups that were put together for the movie do fantastic work i couldn't recommend this movie to everyone like matt would never come back for another recording session if you had to sit through this but if you're in the mood for a whack of 70s nostalgia about the 1950s this is a real fun little movie and i can totally see why some people adored this movie and others completely hated it but the real story for us in context in the context of what we're doing is how did lorraine newman do lorraine's character is called teenage louise and she's a uh, Loosely to heavily based on Carol King, songwriting prodigy, would have been about 23 years old here, but she's playing a teenager. I assume the teenager around 16 or so. I think Lorraine does it very well. She doesn't lean into the teenager the way she would in like the sketches. Like there's no obvious kitty voice and 
some of the like physicality that she would use to play a teenager, uh, she doesn't use here. But she pulls off the youth with like this positive vibe, this energy, and really more than a, <laughs> a tad bit of what I call like naive joy. She brings a lot of her comic sensibilities here, but she's playing a more serious but charming and fun role and does an excellent job as this like dogged dreamer who's fueled by like her talent and her optimism and her love for music. A few times I wondered like maybe they should have cast someone who was actually of that age, but I don't think it would have helped any. I really don't. Lorraine was young enough to pull it off and, and mature enough to avoid a lot of the sort of tropey things that uh, a lot of younger actors do, especially like at that time before the rest of the world pointed it out. You know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, this is kind of a bit of a footnote as far as the movies featuring SNL cast members is concerned. But I think fans of the era of the show, and, and certainly fans of Lorraine Newman, shouldn't sleep on this. I, if they don't enjoy the film, they'll at least enjoy her in this. It's it's different enough from the show that it shows range. Now, not that there was any question about Lorraine Newman having range, but uh, it shows her doing something different in a different context. I thought she was among the best things in the film. For these movie reviews, as we did with Animal House, rather than give it our usual score out of 10, Matt and I are going to do the thumbs up, thumbs down method. And I give this a thumbs up purely for the fun of it. it. This movie makes it easy to overlook a lot of the drawbacks and appreciate the music of the time and the lives of those that were directly or indirectly involved in, in rock music at that point in time. So Matt and I will be back soon with a regular episode. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon in S.N. Hell.